Today's scripture is from the uh, New Living Translation. I'll be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. But this precious treasure, this light and power that now shine within us, is held in perishable containers, that is, in our weak bodies. So everyone can see that our glorious power is from God and is not our own. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed and broken. We are perplexed, but we don't give up and quit. We are hunted down, but God never abandons us. We get knocked down, but we get up again and keep going. Through suffering, these bodies of ours constantly share in the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus, so that the life of Jesus will be obvious in our dying bodies. So, we live in the face of death, but it has resulted in eternal life for you. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you, Barry, and uh, thank you, Ange, so much for sharing this morning. Wonderful. Well, I want to invite you on uh, one last summer trip before we roll over into uh, September and begin a new series of messages uh, this fall uh, called uh, From the Gospel of John. Uh, but this morning, just a, a brief voyage into Second Corinthians, especially chapter 4. Uh, it's been said about Second Corinthians that if you are a man or woman preparing for pastoral ministry, that this letter should be required reading, that no one should enter the pastoral ministry without having thoroughly read this letter. Well, I didn't know that when uh, I started the pastoral journey years ago. Uh, but I think if I would have studied it too closely, it might have scared me off. There's something about just being a little naive that is just so helpful. So you just kind of jump right into ministry and you expect the best. Well, the church at Corinth was uh, a bit of a toughie for Paul. Uh, Corinth was filled with, uh, with division. It had its doctrinal issues. It had uh, some issues of sexual impropriety. In general, it was a church that needed to grow up. It was a church that needed to mature. But where do you get the modeling if you've never been part of a church family that walks with God? And so this was a brand new church, uh, a brand new church plant. And they were all new to faith in Christ. Uh, so there was a lot of discipleship that was needed. Corinth, <coughs> excuse me. Corinth was a seaport. Uh, it was a, a strategic city uh, located on trade routes. So that meant a lot of cultures, uh, a lot of religious thought, a lot of philosophies found uh, fertile ground in Corinth. So, uh, but into this, into this challenging culture, a church was birthed. And uh, this church, uh, as we read, was, uh, was tough to shepherd in the sense that it didn't yield easily to leadership. Much of Paul's suffering in connection with the Corinthian church came from the savage attacks launched against him by a group of false apostles. So the major theme of this epistle is Paul's defense of his integrity and his apostleship. Tough when you have to defend your own integrity and your apostleship. Now, I won't detail this very much, but just here's how Paul responded. While living in Ephesus, Paul sent Timothy to check out the church in Corinth. 
It was going through a very tough time. And Timothy reported to Paul that the church was going south fast. Paul decided to make a visit, and he did, uh, and he got beat up when he went back to Corinth, uh, Corinth, not physically, but emotionally. And they threw some very piercing darts at Paul. It's referred to in Paul's writings as the painful visit. Did you ever have a painful visit with someone? You walk away and say, oh, that was awkward. Uh, not only awkward, that was bad. 2 Corinthians 2.1, Paul writes, So I decided that I would not bring you grief with another painful visit. So Paul walked away from Corinth, devastated, wounded. He said, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Chapter 2, verse 1. Not going to do this again. Bang my head against the wall once. I'm not going to do this again. But by the time he got back to Ephesus, he had been doing a lot of thinking and praying. It helps to walk, by the way. There's probably 100 miles from Corinth to Ephesus. So if you're ever in a situation where you've got a heavy burden that you're carrying, just get out and walk 100 miles. And that's what Paul did. He walked and he prayed and he walked and he prayed. And uh, by the end of that walk, he had a plan. He put together a zinger of a letter. It was called the Severe Letter, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, because it was pretty severe. <coughs> and Paul wrote the letter and gave it to Titus and had him deliver it. And that letter has been lost. Too bad. Uh, too bad that letter is lost because we love to read the Zinger letters. I'd love to read that letter. But he didn't spare too much in that letter. Uh, it was a letter of great emotion. He said, For I wrote to you, Paul says, out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So there are probably more tears than ink on the parchment. It was a severe letter, but it was written simply because he loved them. He was hurt by them, but only because he loved them so much. But the news came back that the letter had hit the mark. And uh, Paul called for repentance, and uh, praise God, the church did repent. 2 Corinthians 7 uh, verse 8 says, I'm not sorry that I sent that severe letter to you, although I was sorry at first, for I know it was painful uh, to you for a little while. Now I'm glad I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and to change their ways. And so that was a good thing. The majority of the church came back to, the, to their loyalty to, to Paul and, best of all, to the gospel. Still, uh, some rejected his authority. So Paul writes this magnificent letter, 2 Corinthians, as he began to make his plans to return for a third visit. So that's just a very quick context for the heart of what Paul wants to say to his brothers and sisters in Corinth. Now, it, it does cause you to say that sometimes as you journey through the Christian life, you get banged around and you feel very weak. Anyone ever been there? <laughs> sure you have. Anyone feeling a little weak today? Sometimes when we have been wounded, we feel weak. Sometimes when we have been physically exhausted, we feel very weak. I got a phone call this week. Uh, or when I got home from vacation over a week ago, and my friend had this little uh, cyst uh, removed from his neck. No big deal. 20 minutes, you're out of there. Well, it turned out to be four and a half hours, and that little lump that, that uh, turned out to be cancerous, and then they looked at the neck and said, that's something strange there, and they looked at the lymph nodes, and, and they turned out to be cancerous, and then they examined the base of the tongue 
and it, uh, there was a little cyst, a little tumor there, and it was cancerous. Suddenly, from the strength of where we normally operate, our lives are catapulted into weakness. And what does all this mean? And where's my life going from here? And suddenly from strength to weakness. You see, it happens in so many ways. You're reading these days, suddenly a prominent leader in the evangelical world is needing to step down for six weeks or more because he needs to take a look at the accusations that have come against his ministry. And right now I can imagine he's absolutely wounded. He is hurt. He's feeling very weak. He's a public figure. When Paul got pounded from the left and from the right, he describes himself as a lowly clay pot. And he stresses his human weakness and his inadequacy. All of us are humbled and stressed by the suffering by Christians in Iraq at the hands of this brutal regime called ISIS. I mean, I can't even imagine the atrocities. And friends, we're living in quite a quite a quite an era of history. Uh, uh, the world is a powder keg, and this just came in this morning. And I appreciate one of our people for sending it to us. And uh, it is just saying, pray, pray, pray. We lost the city of Karakush. It fell to ISIS, and they are. And I'll change the words. They're persecuting our people systematically. This is the city we've been smuggling food to. And this comes from the Crisis Relief International. ISIS has pushed back Kurdish forces and is within 10 minutes of where our CRI team is working. 10 minutes. Thousands more fled the city of Erbil last night. The United Nations evacuated its staff in Erbil. Our team is unmoved and will stay. Prayer cover needed. Please pray sincerely for the deliverance of the people of northern Iraq from the terrible advancement of ISIS and its extreme Islamic goals for mass conversion or death for Christians across this region. And it goes on to say, don't just pass on this email without praying. Make sure that you've prayed. So please, folks, be praying uh, for our brothers and sisters. I know you are, and, and God is sovereign. But we're, we're brought to our knees uh, uh, through the challenges of life. And I, I just, I just um, let's just stop and pray. Would you just with me right now? Lord, uh, would you send heaven's armies to protect these dear people? Would you stop ISIS in their tracks? Would you confuse the enemy? Would you cause them to turn on themselves? We pray that you would protect these relief workers. They've asked for prayer and Lord, we're so glad. We just pray as a congregation right now for your hedge of protection around them. We ask, Father, that you would protect adults and men and women and and protect the children, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There are many times in our Christian lives when we, uh, we, we tend to operate out of our weakness and not our strength. And I just want to, for a few moments here, hitch on to what I think is the major motif of this letter. You keep hearing that theme that weakness is the source of strength and that suffering is the vehicle for God's blessing of God's power and glory. And you can trace that through the letter and 
uh, chapter 4, verses 7 to 12, he writes that we now have this shining light in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. We are so weak. We are, we are like fragile clay pots. We can be broken at any time. But how are we like jars of clay? Clay pots were quite ordinary. They were everywhere in, in Paul's day. I mean, people used a pot for a while. If it got chipped, if it got broken, they just threw it out because they were easy to replace. Got another one. And Paul creates this great juxtaposition. God has taken this great treasure, the life of Christ, the life of Jesus, and he's placed it in people like you and me who are as common and fragile as clay pots. That seems odd. Why would God store something so valuable in a container so ordinary and so fragile? Paul doesn't over-irrigate this thought. It it seems to me he doesn't. Uh, But is it ever life-changing what he has to say? I think I need to read it every day to get it from the pages of Scripture into my heart and then from my heart into my behavior. Why would God store something so valuable, the life of Jesus, the good news of the gospel, in a container so ordinary? Number one, so we... So we keep perspective. So we keep perspective on life. Uh, isn't it amazing that God has a treasure? Where does he put it? As you just heard, God says the treasure is in clay vessels. We might say in our culture, in our word, that, that it's, in a, it's in a styrofoam cup or a plastic cup. or a, uh, What could be more disposable than a, a cup like this? And God has taken the precious treasure and he's poured it into a cup or a brown paper bag and the container is common but the contents are something else they are eternal if you caught any of the Emmys last Monday you couldn't help but take notice of the external the dresses, the suit and who designed your outfit oh it's from Italy and it was designed by so and so and so and so there, there, are, there was significant emphasis on the container. Everyone dressed to the nines. In one of his books, uh, Robert Fulgham tells the story of when his daughter was a little girl and gave him a paper bag to take with him to work. When, when he asked what was in the bag, she answered, well, just some stuff. Just take it with you. And when he sat down for lunch at his desk, the next day he pulled out the paper bag and he poured out its contents Two ribbons, three stones, a plastic dinosaur, a pencil stub, a tiny seashell, used lipstick, two chocolate kisses, and 13 pennies. He chuckled, finished his lunch, and swept everything off into the wastebasket. When he arrived home at night, his his, uh, daughter asked him where the bag was. I left it at the office, uh, he replied. Why? Well, she said, those are things in my sack, Daddy, that belong to me. I really like them. I thought you might like to play with them, but now I want them back. 
When she saw him hesitate, tears welled up in her eyes. You didn't lose the bag, did you, Daddy? He said he didn't. And he would bring it home tomorrow. After she went to bed, he raced back to the office. Fulgham writes, Molly had given me her treasures, all that a seven-year-old held dear, love in a paper bag. And I missed it. Not just missed it, I had thrown it away. Nothing in there I needed. It was the first or last time I felt like my daddy permit was about to run out. I went back to the office, dumped all the wastebaskets onto my desk. The janitor came in and said, did you lose something? Yeah, my mind, it's probably in there. When Fulgham found the bag, he uncrumpled it and filled it again with his daughter's items. Two ribbons, three stones, a plastic dinosaur, a pencil stub, a tiny seashell, used Kleenex, uh, lipstick, two chocolate kisses, and 13 pennies. He took the bag home and sat down with Molly and had her tell the story of every treasure in the bag. And then he writes, To my surprise, Molly gave me the bag once again several days later. Same ratty bag, same stuff inside. I felt forgiven. Over several months, the bag went me from, with me from time to time. It was never clear why I did or did not get it on a certain day. I began to think of it as the daddy prize. And I tried to be as good the night before as I could so I could get it the next morning. In time, Molly turned her attention to other things, lost interest in the game, grew up. Me, I was left holding the bag. She gave it to me one morning and never asked for it again. It sits in my office still, left over from when a child said, Here, this is the best I've got. Take it. It's yours. I missed it the first time, but it's my bag now. You see, God has given us his treasure. The treasure is a little crumpled brown bag. Jesus, his son, the life of Jesus resides in us. We have inside of us the very treasure of God. Listen how Paul phrases it. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. Our culture has trained us to be container conscious. We're mindful of our exterior, our dress, our homes, our vehicles, our resume. I mean, it's just all around us. You can't live in this world without being aware of exterior. The treasure ought never to be mistaken for the packaging in which it comes. God is saying you are clay pots, at times crack pots. I won't say it about you if you don't say it about me. Crack pots. Let's just say clay pots. We're as plain as a brown paper bag. Not that we're not valuable, but don't confuse the treasure you carry for the system of conveyance, which you are. You see, it's humble and fragile to be a clay pot. But the treasure must never be forgotten. 
Don't forget what the treasure is. Remember, you contain it. You are not it. We deliver it. We don't manufacture it. We're not the source of it. We are the delivery system for it. It's what's inside. It doesn't make, play, make sense to place something so valuable in a container so ordinary. Unless, of course, you want people to notice the treasure and not the container. Imagine that you're having guests for dinner. And you decide to make your specialty. Chicken, chicken what? Chicken extraordinary. <laughs> it's, a, it's a family recipe that takes all day to prepare. But these guests are, are important. So you're happy to spend all day preparing. When it comes time for dinner, you bring in the main dish. You set it down in the middle of the table. And your guests exclaim, oh my, look at that. What a beautiful serving bowl. And then they spend the rest of the meal admiring the dish. Where did you get that bowl? They never say a word about the chicken. But next time you fool them, you serve the chicken on a very ordinary looking platter. So no one notices the platter. But they put their eyes on the chicken a la extraordinary. So it is that God pours his life into ordinary containers like you and me so that people will praise him and not us. We are who we are only because of the treasure we carry within us, the life-giving power of Christ. So I, I know, does your, pre, your container not present so well these days? Not feeling great? Got some wrinkles? Got some arthritis, got some disease, have some brokenness in your life, have some deep wounds from the past, have some years of rough living under your belt. Never mind. It's not about you. It's the treasure that people see. It's the power of Christ in your life. It's the transformation of Jesus and what he's done in your life. It's the power of the gospel in action. Look what God wants to do in a world because of the treasure in you. You are awesome because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. So perspective. And then uh, secondly, progress. Our question is this. Why would God store something so valuable, the life of Jesus, the good news of the gospel, the light of the world in a container so ordinary? Even though our exteriors are often weak. Uh, and, and sometimes we think, oh, I'm strong. I can handle this. And then along comes something that just devastates us. And you never know when it's coming. It's called trouble. It's called pressure. It's called stress. And here's how Paul describes it in verse 8. We are pressed on every side by troubles. But we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we're not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Oh, what a litany of troubles. 
Paul, the apostle, faced it all in his life. Have you ever felt pressure in your life? Flat tire and you needed to get someplace for an appointment? Car gets nicked in the parking lot? Panel leaks onto your nice white shirt before you go up for a wedding ceremony? (laughs) There's flood in your basement on Sunday morning? I mean, some of it's humorous and some of it's shattering. And the harder life gets, the more conspicuous the treasure becomes. It's a very important lesson for the Canadian, for the North American church. More fun to teach the healthy, wealthy, and happy version, but it's just not true. In in fact, part of the criticism leveled against Paul was the fact that he went through such pressure times in his life. How can you be an apostle and go through all this stuff? Paul, I thought you were the apostle. Amazing how Paul is just so transparent with his life. He talks about the struggles of life. And in verse 10, he just says, Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. The harder life gets, the more conspicuous the treasure becomes. And that's the kind of progress that our our hearts desire. That's the progress that comes out of pressure. That's the progress that comes out of pressure. And I can't think of a better illustration with which to close than my pastor friend uh, Scott in Alpena, Michigan. I told you about him a few weeks ago. I was able to see him uh, on vacation. And uh, he's recovering from Lyme's disease, which has just incapacitated him over the past 12 years. Getting stronger. And uh, he, uh, he suggested we play golf. So we, we went out to the golf course. And, uh, and fortunately, we were able to just golf together. It was supposed to be a foursome, and two of them canceled. So we had a time to ourselves, and I think that was the Lord. And uh, he said, I might only be able to golf four holes, but I'm going to give it a shot. He actually golfed the whole 18 holes. Miracle that he could do that. Uh, he's getting stronger. He's pastoring a large congregation. Just one stepping back into ministry after 14 years of being set aside, his daughter was killed in a car accident. Uh, That was as recent as February of this year. Scott is giving his best. He's being as efficient as he can. His wife has now just been diagnosed with Lyme's disease as well, every bit as severe as what he has. Oh, we are pressed on every side by troubles. But we are not crushed. We are perplexed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Not a bitter word, not one. Here's what blessed my heart. Scott said the disease sometimes uh, impacts his cognitive ability to write. So hard as he tries, if the neurons are not connecting, it's hard to compose the sermon. So here's what God has taught him. He reads as much as he can on the subject. He writes as much as he can. He prays as much as he can. (laughs) And if the sermon isn't ready by the time he steps into the pulpit on Sunday morning, he has learned to trust God for what's going to come forth. And God always sees him through. God always sees him through. It's in his weakness that God shines through. 
The treasure is evident in the midst of a container that is feeling very weak. It's the treasure of Jesus in Scott. So I know my time is gone. If I could start this message all over again, (laughs) which I won't. uh, The treasure of the life of Jesus is in you. The treasure of the life of Jesus is in you. You say, you don't know me. I feel like my container is pretty banged up. I don't know what people could see in me. I'm here to remind you this morning that the life of Jesus, the treasure of the good news, is in you. And that gives you perspective of who you are, and it gives you progress. That You just keep going to know that the life, the treasure in you is what's making a difference as you, as you move in this world. So whether you're flat in your back, whether uh, you have a friend on a hospital bed, and they're walking with Jesus in the midst of their affliction, everybody gets the blessing. You lose your job in the midst of a tough economy and respond with perseverance and faith. The treasure of Jesus blossoms. Here's a person who goes through a tough experience and says, my desire is to be better and not bitter. Better, not bitter. How do you keep the focus on the treasure inside of you? Very quickly, walk humbly before God and others. Be a lifter in the lives of others. Cultivate a heart of praise and thanksgiving. Nurture a heart of intimacy with the Savior. Be obedient to the Lord's direction. Try to capture as many of his nudges as you can and give him the praise in everything. Let's stand as we pray. Lord, uh, Yes, you're so welcome in our lives. You're so welcome. You are the treasure. You are the treasure of our lives. Forgive us when we direct people to our containers rather than to our treasure. Launch us anew today to honor you, to cherish you, to bless the treasure within us because we are deeply, deeply honored, Lord, to call you our Lord and our Savior, in Jesus' name.